Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 8th, 2020, and this is show number 744. Well, I wasn't allowed to tell you about it last week, but I am authorized to tell you about it this week. We are the proud grandparents of a brand new baby girl named Kennedy June Sheridan. My son Kyle and his lovely wife Nikki made us another grandchild, so we're super excited about that. And Lindsay's making us a third one too. But we aren't here to talk about grandchildren, we're here to talk about tech. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is a bit unusual. As I'll tell you in the introduction, it isn't really an episode of Programming by Stealth, and it's not quite light enough for Chit Chat Across the Pond light. As Bart described it, it's PBS adjacent. But before that scares you away, if you're not a programmer, let me explain why you'll still get something out of this episode. In this episode, Bart explains how he built a series of services to help him manipulate text. Services are created using Automator, and they're accessed via the menu of any application that supports the particular service you create. Apple has unhelpfully renamed the way you create services as Quick Actions inside Automator. Bart explains how he used JavaScript to create Quick Actions to change selected text to lower, upper, or title case, and even plain text. He's also got ones that count characters, lines, or words. You know how annoying it is when you copy some text and it's got like leading or trailing spaces and then it doesn't work properly when you paste somewhere like maybe like a phone number into a web form? Well, he's even got one that will trim that annoying white space off of the clipboard. Now, I said I would make sure you're not scared off if you're not a JavaScript programmer. Bart very helpfully made all of his quick action slash services available for download so you can install them on your Mac and use them without any programming at all. It was a really fun episode, and we both enjoyed ourselves immensely talking about it. For once, we didn't strictly stay on task either, and we chatted up a bit about all kinds of things because we were having such a good, relaxed time. Since this episode didn't fit in Chit Chat Across the Pond light, and it didn't fit in Programming by Stealth, I decided to put it in both. Look for it in your podcatcher of choice, or you can listen right over at podfee.com, looking for Chit Chat Across the Pond, episode 628. And I've got a link in the show notes to Bart's excellent written tutorial over at bartb.ie. And you can also find the download link for his quick actions right there. All right, we've got a whole bunch of really good interviews from CES. I'm pretty excited about these. Let's get started right now. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. I am a sucker for a doc. But I am at the Line Doc booth with uh, Quentin Malgo, and this is a doc unlike anything I've ever seen before. Hi, Quentin. How are you doing? Hi, Alison. I'm, I'm doing fine. Thank you. We're incredibly excited to be to here tonight to introduce the 16-inch Line Doc, but perhaps I should first explain to you what is the Line Doc. Yes, yes. And, and uh, by the way, we love Belgians. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, uh, Nancy and I, we're two co-founders. We're, we're born and raised in Belgium, uh, and we had this incredible idea to tap into USB-C and use it as an opportunity to finally smash together all those accessories that we carry on every day. All those adapters and charges and dongles and external hard drives and everything. Well, we wanted to make it beautiful because they're just usually 50 bucks plastic potatoes. Well, we decided to do it, to go for something different. So we made this nine millimeter piece of aluminum that you slide underneath your MacBook that packs one extra charge for your MacBook. So Hang on, let me describe this. Sure. It looks like he's holding a MacBook that has no logo on it in his hand. It's very thin, but it's the same space gray, 
but it, it looks like a MacBook. It's a flat 13-inch. Yes. Very, very thin device. So now, what does it what does it have in it? Show, show it over there. Yeah, so it has one extra charge for your MacBook. So it's a built-in battery, insanely powerful, up to 60-watt power output. So it's charging just as fast as a wall charger, right? You can actually fast charge the MacBook Air with it because the MacBook Air comes with a 30 watts power, uh, power adapter. This one is 60 watts. You get it charged up to 50% twice as fast. Wow. So this is power delivery, right? Yes, power delivery, 60 watts. Power delivery is my favorite thing invented. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. So apart from that, we got up to one terabyte SSD. So it's available in three storages option. First option is zero gigs, no storage. Second is 256, and for the really heavy users, we have a one terabyte option. All right. So, so this flat piece of uh, aluminum yes. is not just a dock, but it's also an SSD if that's what you need. But you don't have to pay for it if you don't need it. Exactly, precisely. That's that's our strategy. All right. Let's talk ports, though. We yes. got to talk ports. Yeah. So for the ports, uh, you connect it with. Yes. You connect it using a USB-C cable, and then you get access to one, two USB 3 ports, an SD card slot, this is the battery indicator. Oh, the button we all miss on the MacBook Pro. It's gone, yes. it's been gone, but yeah, a little button and it showed a bunch of little blue LEDs. Oh, I love that. Yes, with a nice fade in, fade out. You know, it's not like one, two, three. We wanted to make it beautiful. Very pretty, so, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. On the back, we have a charging USB-C port. And are these vent, air vents? This is passive cooling, no fans, no noise. No noise, good. And on the other side, we got an extra USB-C port, a third USB-3 port, a mini display port, and an HDMI port. Wow. That is, that is the LineDock 13-inch. So but your MacBook Pro is just going to cover all this up. It's just going to sit on top of it, right? Exactly. It's sitting flush. You're losing zero square inches of workspace. Wow. It's, there you go. I like that. Yeah, thanks. And the way it works is you have this tiny USB-C cable that is called a U cable because it's in a U shape. It so I'm holding like this in my hand. Yeah, it looks like a little tiny horseshoe, maybe an inch across. It's got two little USB ports and on or USB uh, connectors. So I'm guessing USB-C. Sorry. So I'm guessing it pl plugs into the side and then it plugs into your laptop. Precisely. That's how it goes. Oh, that is so clean. I love this. Thank you. Thank you. So that is a 13-inch Mac uh, line dock. I'm sorry. Um, that's been available since last year. But today, we're announcing the LineDock 16-inch. All right, I have a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Let's talk. Fantastic. So we've revamped the whole thing from A to Z. So first, we've doubled everything. Double the SSD speed. We've doubled the USB-C hub speed. Um, we've increased the battery size and doubled the power. So it's up to 100 watts power output from the battery. Nice. Yes. But then we stopped like doubling things and flexing with the engineers and started thinking from a user perspective because who are the 16-inch MacBook Pro users? They're videographers, they're photographers like you, and they need things that other people don't. What do they need? They need SD cards and fast ones. So we've added a second SD card slot and both of them are UHS-2 which gives you 350 megabits per second read and write. That's ridiculous. Holy cow. Yeah, I know, I know. And then, our happy USB port. Yes. And then we still have fanless uh, uh, passive cooling. Passive cooling. And then we've shifted the video output at the back and added a second one. So now we have dual HDMI output. And that allows for the sleekest setup you could possibly think of. Because look over there, we have two monitors, a dual monitor setup with a MacBook 
and the line dock and you don't see any cable because oh, all the cables yeah, are in the yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. This, I'm going to take a picture of this for the show notes because that is just gorgeous. There's there's literally nothing. I can see a, a little bit of a cable coming off of one monitor, but that's it. Everything yes. cable is. And right, of course, what about we, on the other side? On the other side, we kept the USB 3 ports because we, because we still need them. Yes, we do. Yes, USB, we do. So they're USB Type-A. USB 3 cables. Uh, precisely. Yes. And power delivery on this side, and we still got, wait. We still got our lights. Yeah, yeah, of course. But people Unless have been burned savage the battery today. Out. So yeah. Savage. <laughs> savage today. So uh, let's talk about pricing. If we look at the 13-inch uh, line dock, let's say no memory in it. What no are we talking memory about? memory at 349 USD. Then you ha you add a hundred dollars, and you get 256 gigabytes for 449. So that could just be your backup drive then. Yeah, exactly. It's just a backup. You know, 256 is just what you need. And then for heavy users on 13-inch, we get the one terabyte version retailing for 749 USA. All right? Now, the 16-inch that we're announcing today will be available in March. But I can't really let you know the price yet because we're still... Oh, you're a big tease. I know, I know. No, but we're... Quentin, after all we've been through together, you're not going <laughs> to tell me. Here, just whisper it into this microphone. No, I can't disappoint you. We still have a few details to fix. We're a really small team, only three people here. We're working really hard. But today, we're still waiting for one or two quotes from our suppliers to know... Precisely what it costs you. Yeah, exactly. This is this is beautiful work, and I think uh, you're you're in the right market because Apple people appreciate a beautiful design, and uh, a lot of docks are. Uh, the horizontal lay on your desk and they take up a bunch of space. I've been favoring like the CalDigit TS3 Plus that at least stands Wonderful. up. Yes. So it doesn't take up a lot of room, but this doesn't take up any room because my Mac would be under it. On yes. top of it, I should say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And another cool thing about it is that when you're not at your desk and you have your computer in your backpack, for instance, well, this thing is still beautiful in your desk. Yes. Because the other solutions, eh, in my opinion, they don't. Right? There are cables hanging all yeah, over the place. Exactly. Like, yeah. like this thing is neat and well, we put all the love that we have in it. So I hope you like it. It looks fantastic. So Quentin, if people wanted to find more about LineDoc, where would they go? www.linedoc.co. LineDoc.co. And it's Belgian. You gotta love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Alison. Now, I told you guys that we had a lot of really cool interviews, and you can tell that I loved this guy. I, I, I just thought this doc was fantastic, and his enthusiasm was wonderful. After we finished recording, he did something interesting. He showed us the inside of the line dock, and the inside of the line dock is a map of the, uh, of the globe, a flattened map of the globe, and it's got little lights for where each person who worked on the project lives. And it's really cool. It's as as Steve said, it was very much a uh, Steve Jobs painting the backside of the fence thing to do, and it it just showed this this detail and joy that they had in what they had built. So actually, now that I look at it, uh, I'm looking at a photo I took of it. I think it's actually the back of the circuit board has it printed on it. So anyway, it was very very cool, and uh, I can't wait to see these things come out. It sounds it sounds like a really nifty device. I want to give you a setup for this next uh, interview that you're going to hear. It's from a company called North American Lighting, and they've created what they're calling adaptive headlights. The guy that's going to do the interview doesn't really get to the real point for quite a while in the interview. So I wanted to kind of set it up for you so you'd understand what he's talking about before he actually starts describing it. The idea of these adaptive headlights is they would allow you to not shine bright headlights into people's faces like 
cars, oncoming cars. So it actually puts a shadow, adaptively puts a shadow where the lights are, are coming at you. So I would, when I'm driving a car with these adaptive headlights, my headlights would not shine in your eyes because you've got your headlights shining at me. So I'm, I'm able to adapt and not shine directly at you, but my headlights would be brightly lighting everything else. So it provides this shadow that protects you from ending up with bright headlights in your eyes. That's the idea. And um, so this is not something very practical for today. It's definitely a future thing, but it was still a really interesting concept, we thought, and worthy of, of playing. And uh, it's not something you can buy. It's something that they will be trying to talk uh, car manufacturers into putting into their cars in the future. All right. With that big preamble, let's play the interview. We're in the Coito booth right now, and I'm talking to Kishore. How do you say your full name again? Kishore Ahuja. All right, and uh, what is it you guys do? You talked about uh, North American Lighting is the local U.S. company. What do you right, do? That's right. The Koido Group is the world's leading supplier of uh, automotive exterior lighting with 23,000 people in 12 countries. And one of our driving missions is to really reduce roadway fatalities that are caused in the night with poor visibility. Okay. So we typically drive at night with low beams, uh, which maybe doesn't light up an object or an animal or a human that creates the accidents. Right, right. I always want to put on my high beams, but I can't. But you can't because of the glare. So the whole concept here of adaptive driving beam is to provide, provide a glare-free headlight. And we do that by sensing the cars coming towards you or ahead of you and sending that signal to the headlight and turning some LEDs on or off so that you can put a shadow in front of those cars oh. and still have a full high beam. Okay, so As that's where the adaptive see, lighting comes in. That's exactly, in. that's the adaptive let's lighting. Move in, let's move in here a little bit. Come in okay. here a little closer so we can show. So uh, I'm gonna describe this a little bit. We've got a, a, light, a, a, light, a lamp here that's pointing at a screen, right? And what are, what are we seeing? Yeah, that's correct. So what you're seeing here is with the camera, the car detects that car in front of you and therefore sends this message to the headlight to put that shadow and depending on the system we are using here, put a shadow like that or a really precise shadow right around that car so that you can not glare the other driver yet be able to see the pedestrians or animals around that car. Wow, that is fantastic. And uh, now, why is he holding up a stop sign there, too? So for the stop sign, if there's a high beam, it'll glare back at you. You may not be able to really tell it's a stop sign or read what's said there. So around the stop sign, you dim the light so you can see it. At the same time, it doesn't glare you. Oh, that is really slick. So we're seeing as he's holding that stop sign out, it's got a giant square around it. That tells you that's that shadow that he's talking about, right? That's correct. Yes. Adaptively creating right. that shadow with the, uh, with, the, with the light. It's a closed loop that moves around it. Wow, that that's is exactly really right. cool. Yeah, and we have a couple of different levels of this system where you can either have a big shadow and in the future state have a very, very precise shape surrounding that object. Wow. So, okay, yeah, we, uh, so Steve is suggesting, can you turn off the adaptive control to show what it would look like? I don't Surprise know if he can turn can it you, off. Can you uh, turn that off? Yeah, so that's what it would look like. Because there's a light, yeah, when the light is shining on there, all you're seeing is behind it a shadow there. 
Right, right. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So, uh, I, obviously, you're bringing this to the auto manufacturers, correct? Yeah, well, yes, that is true. It's actually legally approved in Europe and Japan. So, we just launched the system on this LX, uh, RX vehicle, uh, Lexus RX vehicle in Europe and Japan. However, the U.S. doesn't yet allow this technology. So, the automakers are working with NHTSA to be able to get it approved so we can get the same safety devices on the U.S. roads. I understand that's a difficult path, like they haven't approved uh, electronic uh, side-view mirrors yet. That's correct. That, that it's an example it has of to be mirrors, situation. right? Yes, that's correct. Maybe the glass mirror companies have a better lobby. I'm not sure why that is. There's probably a good reason, but yeah. I wish you the best of luck. This is very interesting. If people wanted to see anything about it, where would they go? Well, uh, they can go to booth 5220 here at CES. I'm sorry, people who are listening and watching the video, if they want to look at this, could they see it at Coito.com or? Yes, they can go to NAL.com and they can get a link to the Coito website. They can get a link to our Silicon Valley lab uh, and, uh, you know. See some demos. Okay, NAL.com. NAL.com. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, this next tech story I'm going to tell you about may have no value for you other than your own entertainment, but it will have value for me. As part of a cathartic exercise, I'd like to explain everything that went wrong from a technical perspective last week when we tried to do the live show from Lindsay's house. I'm hoping that if I tell you about it, maybe I'll think to look back at these notes next time if we run into similar problems. All right, let's review our normal setup for the live show before I explain how different things are on the road. When we're at home, Steve uses a 27-inch iMac with a second 27-inch cinema display. He runs the software Mimo Live from Boinks on his iMac to capture video from his webcam, video from my webcam, video of my desktop, a desktop, and audio from both of us. We moved all of this heavy lifting to his computer just, I don't know, a year or two years ago, and it's been great that I no longer am driving the production of the live show while also creating this podcast. He uses a Logitech C920 webcam to capture his video and a Heil PR20 microphone for his audio, and the Heil requires a Shure MVI audio interface that takes the Heil's XLR input and converts it to USB that he can plug into his Mac. I use a Logitech C920 webcam as well, a Heil PR40 microphone, and the same Shure MVI audio interface. I have all of that hooked up at home to my 16-inch MacBook Pro and a 27-inch LG 5K display. All right. On the road, though, Steve uses his 13-inch MacBook Pro instead of his iMac, and I keep using my MacBook Pro. I like having one computer. I don't don't cut into this two-computer nonsense. Anyway, in theory, we both carry our two Logitech webcams with us on the road. The Heil mics are kind of a problem to drag along because they're installed in boom arms and difficult to remove. Instead, our Rode microphones are the Shure SM58s I bought last year for just this purpose. These are nice as Rode mics because they can take a beating. They're XLR mics too, so we need to carry an interface to USB. When we went to Lindsay, Steve brought his Shure MVI with him, but I wanted to use the Zoom H4n Pro portable recorder Steve bought me that doubles as an audio interface. In retrospect, I think using the Shure MVI would have made my life a lot easier. Now, in theory, this is all we really need to make the show happen. Now I'd like to talk to you about how absolutely every single thing we tried to do, now pretty much everything went wrong. First of all, Lindsay and Nolan are super accommodating when we need to do recordings, helping us rearrange their rooms to our heart's content. 
Both her guest room and her grandson Forbes's bedroom have built-in desks, so we drag in a couple of kitchen table chairs and we're in good shape. I take the guest room while Steve is in Forbes' room. I juggle a lot of apps during the live show, so I need screen real estate. There's a 24-inch display in the guest room, which I can hook up via HDMI to my MacBook Pro with a USB-C dongle. I've done this before, and it worked great every time. Now, I plugged in all my hardware and started to get ready to go when Steve realized that he forgot to bring his long Ethernet cable. Since Steve is the one broadcasting the video to the internet, it's essential that he has the fastest connection available, not me. In the past, he has used this long cable uh, to go from Forbes' room to the guest room where Lindsay and I set up an Orbi mesh router. Now, that Orbi isn't the primary one. The primary one's miles away in the den. But this Orbi is connected, in theory, to Ethernet over Powerline, so it should be a faster connection if you're wide- wired to it. The Ethernet over Powerline connector came up as part of some janky free system. Well, actually, no, now that I think about it, it came from a system to do with their solar. So they got solar energy and the solar panels needed a wired connection. So they installed these uh, little Ethernet over Powerline adapters and they had an extra one, I guess. And so one of them is sitting in uh, the guest room. So I'm not actually 100% sure it's doing anything. And I've also not been absolutely sure the Orbi is doing the job we need for their very long ranch style home. But it feels better if Steve, who's broadcasting the video, is plugged into Ethernet. Well, Lindsay dug out a shorter Ethernet cable because Steve brought his original, forgot to bring his long one, so that meant we had to switch rooms. We disassembled all these different pieces we carried with us, and we switched room, dragging the hardware back and forth, including me moving the monitor into Forbes' room, just so Steve could plug in. All right, great, let's get started. Well, in order for me to send my video to Steve, running Mimo Live, I open a unique URL in Chrome that connects me to him using something called Mimo Call. It doesn't work well with Safari, so I have to use Chrome or Edge, which is based on Chromium. Unfortunately, when I launched Chrome and tried to go to the Mimo Call URL, it would not render. I tried Edge. It wouldn't work either. In fact, I couldn't go anywhere on the internet using Chrome or Edge. I opened Safari, and that worked just fine. What on earth would let one browser out, but not another? I suddenly remembered that I'd recently been in the car trying to tether my MacBook Pro to my iPhone and not being able to connect to some services, but others would connect to the internet. At the time, I immediately remembered why. Back in 2015, I told you about a tool called Trip Mode. It's a tool that limits your Mac network usage to only those apps you allow. For some reason, this tool that I hadn't interacted with in ages, ever since I got an unlimited data plan, had decided to launch automatically again. Maybe that's why Chrome and Edge can't get through. I launched Trip Mode from the menu bar, and sure enough, Safari was enabled in Trip Mode, and Chrome and Edge were disabled. Well, I quit Trip Mode, and since my memory is approximately on par with that of a hamster, so I knew this would happen again, I immediately went into System Preferences, and I removed Trip Mode from my startup items. I launched Chrome, and it immediately connected to my Mimo call session, and now I was ready to connect to Steve. But when I went into the Mimo call, Steve was not there. I then heard some grumbling from the other room about Mimo Live needing some updates on his MacBook Pro. Of course, it's up to date on his iMac at home, but he hasn't tried it on his MacBook Pro in quite some time, so he had to run the updates. While awaiting Steve's arrival, I launched Discord so I could chat with the live audience. 
It's not uncommon for Discord to get its panties in a bunch and have trouble launching, and of course, on this day, it did just that. After watching it spin for a bit, I read the message on screen more carefully and saw that it was telling me that there was an update, but the update was failing, and it was retrying repeatedly, saying, I'm going to try again in 60 seconds. Well, I quit and restarted it several times with no joy. Then I heard from the other room that Steve was having the exact same problem with Discord. I thought of a workaround for the misbehaving Discord desktop app. I've embedded the live chat from Discord using a bot on podfeet.com live. I can chat there. But then I remembered I never finished configuring the bot last week when our previous bot went haywire. And instead of showing the NoSilicast chat channel server, it was showing some generic server. And someone in there was repeatedly writing a very non-NoSilicast safe word over and over and over on the screen. This is just what I needed. I jumped into WordPress, did a search for the live page, and immediately deleted all of the code to connect to the bot, and I will figure that one out later. Around this time, both Steve and my Discord apps finally got their updates, so we were finally back in business. That's when Steve realized that he forgot to bring his wired headphones. We both keep a set of of Bose noise-canceling earbuds in our backpacks for travel on planes. I was planning on using mine, but I figured I could wear some ear pods and give him my bows. See, the problem, he can't wear the ear pods because they fall out of his ears, so I had to give him my bows. That's when I realized that all of the modern ear pods have lightning connectors, not headphone connectors, and there's no adapter that goes in that direction. I also can't use Bluetooth headphones because I monitor my own voice and there is a huge lag from, on Bluetooth, so you just can't monitor your own voice with Bluetooth. Can't be done. All right, so Steve's got my bows. What am I going to do? Lindsay dove back into her cable box and she found an older pair of earpods with a headphone jack. And now I was good to go. Now it's worthy of note that when we got home, Steve's bows headphones decided to reveal themselves in the totally wrong pocket of his backpack. I think they were conspiring against us. At this point, I discovered I forgot my Logitech webcam. <laughs> Seriously, I can't even make fun of him for not bringing, being able to find his headphones. He graciously said he'd use the built-in eyesight camera on his laptop and I could have the Logitech. After I got it set up, though, with the fluorescent overhead lighting in Forbes's room, I pretty much looked like death warmed over using the Logitech. Steve looked great with the internal camera, where he also had this same uh, fluorescent overhead lighting, so I bailed on the Logitech and now I look good, too. Now, remember I mentioned up front that Lindsay has an HDMI-capable monitor? I had dragged that from room to room so I could use it for application overflow. I plugged it into my dongle and it looked great. And then it started to blink. Not all the time, just like every 10 seconds or so. I fiddled with all of the options and no matter what I tried, it kept blinking. Well, that won't do, so I unplugged it. I brought in my trusty 12.9-inch iPad Pro and using macOS Catalina's sidecar feature, I had a gorgeous high-resolution display up my side. I should have done that to start with. All right, you would think we were good now, right? But let's talk about audio. Steve had no trouble at all setting up the SM58 mic to his Shure MVI interface. I plugged the SM58 into the Zoom H4n Pro, and I went through the little on-screen dance to switch from using it as a recorder to using it as an interface. One step of that is ensuring that the sample rate is set to 44.1 kilohertz. You may remember that discussion we had last June when I told you about the Zoom H4n Pro. If you don't have it at 44.1 kilohertz and instead have it at 48 kilohertz, you end up sounding like a chipmunk. I don't really know why that's an option. I should find out someday. 
Anyway, I did a test recording and my audio sounded like horse poop, as Bart would say. It was crunchy and distorted as I was monitoring myself. I unplugged the XLR cable at both ends. I tried the second XLR input on the recorder, and I even got Steve to swap XLR cables with me to see if it was a connection problem. I didn't realize it while monitoring my voice, but on playback, I noticed that my voice was not only crunchy, it was also sped up. I double-checked the setting on the Zoom to make sure it was at 44.1 kilohertz, and I even rebooted the Zoom, but it was still horrible audio. Of all the things to go wrong, this is the worst, because there's no point in having a live show or me even recording because I can't even record the actual podcast, right? Well, finally, I remembered that there's this arcane application on the Mac called Audio MIDI Setup. It's buried down in utilities, and it also has a sample rate setting. Now, of course, I had put that in my write-up of the Zoom H4n, but remember that part about me having the memory of a hamster? Well, anyway, I knew this would fix the chipmunk problem, but it turned out to fix the crunchy problem, too. I'd never heard it do that problem before, but I was delighted when it went away. Now can we start the show? All right, no. We've got every single failure fixed, and it was time to go live. At first, we couldn't hear Steve in Discord, but that happens to us all the time, so we just quit Discord and he went back in. But then the live audience said my audio started getting choppy. Then we noticed that my video was really choppy. I went in and out of Discord, and they'd say, oh yeah, it's good, it's good. Oh, no, no, it's gone in the pooper again. Well, at this point, I told Steve in the audience, there was nothing left for me to do. I was out of ideas. I was exhausted by all of these problems and I had adapted to every single one of them and I had nothing left to offer. I assumed my choppy audio and video was a networking problem and I wasn't about to diagnose the network that night. I had a bail on the live show and I was really sad because Michael Price was back in the live show after a really long time away. I hated to bail on everyone because we have such a great time cavorting with each other on Sunday nights, but it was not meant to be. We shut everything down and I recorded the show all alone. Well, a few days later, I was at home when I realized why my audio video was a mess on the road. Anyone already guessed it? Remember that awesome tool I told you about less than a month ago called Turbo Boost Switcher? Its whole job is to turn off Turbo Boost on my command. I had left it turned off. So here I am on my wicked fast 8-core 2.4 gigahertz i9 MacBook Pro capable of bursting to 5 gigahertz and it was being forced to stay down in the low 2 gigahertz range while I'm asking it to broadcast video and audio and record audio and live chat and some video on my desktop to Steve. The poor thing never had a chance. Well, I did say I had the memory of a hamster. And like I said, perhaps this story won't help you in any of your technical work, but I felt the need to tell you the story, especially the story of how I could have succeeded in the end in spite of the technical gremlins conspiring against us. We're now in the Netherlands section of the uh, of Eureka Park, I think, in uh, in the Sands Hotel at CES. And of course, I had to stop by a Netherlands booth because we have a lot of friends in the Netherlands. And I'm here with uh, Dr. Jeroen van der Hoot. Did I get close? Yes, that's correct. Perfect. Yes. We're going to talk about a really interesting medical device. What are you What are you showing us here today? That's correct. So what we're showing here is a uh, innovative uh, device 
for detecting epilepsy during night because uh, one in 100 people does suffer from epilepsy and if you have epilepsy if you're lucky you can get medication that works but if you're unlucky one-third of the population with epilepsy uh, does is not helped by any kind of medicine so meaning that every day they're afraid when the next epileptic seizure will occur now if you want to take care of somebody with epilepsy it's important that you're there after a seizure or during a seizure during daytime it's a challenge but it's doable there's people around exactly so at night there's a real challenge because the, the people that are taking care of the people with epilepsy sleep themselves if they're professional caregivers they cannot stay in the same room stand so, there and stare at somebody sleeping yeah yeah well actually at this time if you would be a parent with a child with epilepsy you're advised to sleep with your child all night every night so what uh, the, the, the uh, a group of neurologists from the Netherlands they joined forces and they've worked for 15 years on a, a large research project it started as a research project to detect all kind of dangerous epileptic seizures during night and these are seizures where you com com could potentially die from this is a group of different kind of seizures i don't name them all but all of them have a potential risk and what the group of neurologists did is gather a group a large group of patients measure their heart rate changes and their movement patterns and based on that develop an algorithm that can detect these kind of seizures during sleep in a, a very high sensitivity with very low false alarms because this is a challenge right right so uh this is this is developing essentially a profile of what a seizure looks like exactly. with heart rate and what else did you say movement patterns Oh, so interesting. Shaking or whatever. Yeah, yeah but, but a specific type. Yes, but there are a lot of seizure types that do not involve movement and still are dangerous. So that's why we also added the parameter of heart rate changes. And uh, okay. this combination has, uh, has yielded this product as a spin-off of this group of neurologists. It's called the Nightwatch. It's worn on the upper arm, like here. It has a heart rate sensor and a movement sensor. You wear it when you go to sleep. It looks, I'm going to describe this for the audio audience as well, is it's basically like, a, I don't know, maybe three inches by two inches, and it's just held his arm by a, a light elastic band. It looks pretty comfortable, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. And the idea is, it's just shipped in a box like this, uh, and the idea is that if you, you are helped by this, you do not need to connect it to any mobile phone. It's just a solution that works out of the box. It doesn't have to be configured on a specific uh, patient. It works out of the box. Now this, the idea is you wear it on your upper arm and the base station that is connected wirelessly to this device, you place it on the uh, uh, table next to the bed of the parents for example or in a professional care setting you could connect it to a nurse call system. Okay so it's got an ethernet jack so it connects yeah. Uh, yeah. to the network and then has a wireless uh, transmission yeah, from the device. You don't need to connect it to an anything if you just work, it's like a baby monitor in basic. So you just put this on your bedside if you have a child with epilepsy, as soon as the device uh, detects a seizure, a dangerous seizure, this is going to ring, you're going to wake up, you're going to check on your baby. Wow, that is that is pretty cool. So I see you've got an iPad in here. Where, yeah, or, this is only for or, Not an iPad. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, so you can see what, the, uh, what it would look like on screen. Yeah. So there is an app, though? 
Yeah, well, there is, a, there is an online data portal that you can use for exporting the data. So all the measurements can be uploaded so you can get overviews of your seizures uh, during, uh, after each night and, uh, and, and get overviews. But the interesting uh, philosophy behind the, this machine, this, this device, is that you do not need it. So if you are, so, because you can imagine that if, you, if you're facing with epilepsy and you, you cannot sleep because your child has severe epilepsy, if you need to connect to an iPhone or a, a smartphone, you are in constant, uh, you, you have you, you, intellectual, yeah, if, if, if okay, if my battery is charged and everything, this a is a lot of worry and you're yes. trying to get away from worry. Exactly. Right? So if you do not connect it to the internet, it still works. And if you decide to connect it to the internet, then you get all kinds of data storage and insights and that's kind of And stuff. those insights I would imagine would be helpful to show to a doctor as exactly. far as medication and, and exactly. Yeah. okay. Exactly. That's true. So if you compare this to, to what is there in the market now and why this is so innovative. The big thing is there is so many different devices out there that can detect epilepsy. I mean, you, you explained to me that you're an engineer. Um, you can imagine that it's not very difficult to create a device that detects specific movements. But so it's fairly easy to create a device that detects epilepsy. It's very important, uh, difficult to de 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 design a, a de machine that detects epilepsy but does not ring on other events. Okay. And this so is it's the false challenge. alarms that are, that is, that, that's, that's worse, right? Well, not worse. I guess it's better to be notified, but if, if nobody can sleep because it's going off all the time. That's absolutely like true. Like dreams, for example, yeah. right? Well, that's absolutely true. And that's why, and I, I, I really, I, I make this as a statement, that at this point, there is no device in the market that is working as good as this device, because we have a performed a very large clinical study where we the, the, uh, uh, compared this device to the best available alternative on professional level, which is a movement-based uh, based sensor in, a, in the bed. Oh, okay. um, and, uh, and we detect, the Nightwatch detects 9 out of 10 of all dangerous seizures, while as the, the bed mattress detects 25%. So it's a huge improvement. Wow, that is fantastic. I wanted to ask you to repeat something you said at the very beginning, because I think I misheard it. Um, I thought I heard you say that one out of 100 people has epilepsy, but that's not the statistic, right? Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of different statistics out there. As if you, you, would, if you go, would go around here and interview people, one in 100 people suffers from epilepsy. One, of, one out of 50 of each person has, uh, will be having epilepsy somewhere during their lives. Really? I'm sorry, I'm going to go double check that stat because that, I mean, you know your business, but I've only met like one or maybe two people in my entire life. And I've been around 61 years, so I didn't know the statistic was that high. Yeah, well, I don't know, maybe it's different in your country, but I would doubt that. No, I doubt it. I don't think biology is that much no, different. I, don't, I think so, I think and so. Yeah. I have a bad habit of arguing with people who are experts in a subject, So, uh, but I, mean, I wanted to check that. Uh, I mean, the thing is that, uh, that if you have epilepsy, it's not always a lifetime disease. It can come and go away. Okay, so uh, let me ask one other question. Uh, there, are, there are seizures that are not epileptic, is that correct also? Well, that's correct, but this, then it's not called epilepsy. So if you, you, are, you are diagnosed with epilepsy in the Netherlands, you are diagnosed with epilepsy if you have at least two seizures that are diagnosed as epilepsy. Okay, okay, yeah. so it is a distinct thing. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. 
That's true. And the, the thing is, it has a huge impact on your life because uh, because you cannot drive a car and uh, that oh, kind right. of stuff. Oh right. Oh sure. And, uh, yeah. and 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 people that take care of you have to be very aware of you because if you look at death due to epilepsy in the Netherlands, there's uh, 17 million people living in the Netherlands, and each year 150 people they die in their sleep. Uh, due to epilepsy. Oh, wow! And wow! This is an important. Uh, yes, important. this is this is the thing. Um, the chances of dying from epilepsy are not huge, yeah, but they are considerable. And this is the major fear at parents, at caregivers, that you go in the morning to people, uh, person with epilepsy, and and he is, has disease during sleep. So. Uh, the thing is that whether, whether it's likely to happen or not, if you're afraid of it at all times, this would be a good thing. The thing is, the thing is, death due to epilepsy is called SUDEP, S-U-D-E-P, and it's called sudden unexpected death due to epilepsy. The thing is, they don't know why exactly it's happening, but they know it's happened after a seizure, and they also know is that if somebody is present in the room, it almost never happens. Now we have a device that guarantees you that in nine out of ten types of seizures, you are a warrant and you are there in the room. Very good. So uh, this looks fairly productized already. Uh, when do you expect to be able to ship this? Yeah, well, we already uh, shipped this in uh, Europe. We are on the Dutch market for over a one and a half year. We have already obtained market leader position with this device. We shipped uh, nearly 1,000 units already, and uh, we are now expanding the business. So this is the first time we bring it to the U.S. It is a medical device. So it, you have to do FDA approval. Yeah, so we are in, in, in the early stage of, of, of this process, but then we hope to meet a lot of people that can help us with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, the name of the product is Nightwatch, yeah. and the name of the company is? Live Assured. Live Assured? Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's your website? Uh, it's www.nightwatchepilepsy.com. Nightwatchepilepsy.com. Thank you very much. This is an important product. Well, thank you for having us. And uh, yeah. Well, for all the dog lovers out there, I'm with a uh, going to hear about a product called Spot On, and I'm talking to Ken Solinsky. What are we doing here? So, Spot On is a virtual smart fence that enables you to create a perimeter in your backyard to contain your dog by simply walking the perimeter with the collar in learn mode and then saving it when you get done walking the perimeter. Wait, that's all you got to do? That's all you have to do. Now, in addition to being able to create that perimeter at your own backyard, you can create up to 10 perimeters that are stored in the collar. So you can have an area defined in your backyard, plus at friends and family's backyards, when you go on vacation, if you go camping or wherever you may go. So it enables you to take your dog with you as you travel. Oh, wow, that is really slick. So you've got it in your hand. It's kind of a big, chunky collar, but it's not too bad if you've got a big enough dog. I wouldn't put it on a uh, chihuahua, maybe. No, typically it's for dogs that's 25 pounds and up. Okay. We are working on a smaller version, which we think will go down to about 12-pound dogs. But right now we're at 25 pounds and up. That's most of your bigger outdoor dogs anyway. So... Um, so how does this uh, compare to, you, you were talking before we started recording about uh, burying a wire in the ground, that, that's not a good idea anymore? So the limitations with the, the buried wires are one, you need to typically get it professionally installed, particularly if you're looking to cut across driveways and things like that. Oh, I didn't think about that. There's an escape hatch for them, right? <laughs> Second, you can't take it with you. So it's one, it's one fence. With this, you get, if you will, 10 fences for the price of one. 
Very good. Now, what, what do, happens to the dog if the dog gets close to that perimeter that you set up? As the dog approaches the perimeter, it hears a series of tones, starting with like a friendly, come here, come here, and then it gets a, a more harsh-sounding tone, such as, get over here. Most dogs will respond to that, particularly after they've been trained. If you have a dog that is kind of stubborn and doesn't respond to the tones, there is the option to turn on static correction. And if you choose that option, there's 30 different levels, so you can set it for the lowest possible level that gets your dog's attention. And static correction is, uh, is a code word for a little shock, right? It's basically the same kind of a shock that you get if you walk across a carpet and then touch a light switch. Okay, surprising but not painful. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and we've you know talked to numerous vets and all that. It does not hurt the dogs. Okay, very cool. The, the other thing is, unlike the traditional fences, buried wire fences, in this case, if your dog should go beyond the fence perimeter, you can get a notification on your cell phone um, with turn-by-turn -turn directions so you can get reunited with your dog. Also, unlike the traditional fences, if your dog gets out and looks to come back home, it does not get a static correction coming back home. That was a good design decision. I'm glad you guys thought that out. Yeah, because in our case, we know the direction the dog is going. Wow, wow. So uh, you do this with GPS? We do it with GPS. And we're actually using three different satellite constellations um, for the highest accuracy in any consumer GPS device out there. Wow, that's fantastic. So um, I was worried this was going to have to have a cellular connection, and that means a monthly fee and all that. I assume this you don't have to have a monthly fee with this? You don't have to have a monthly fee to establish defenses. If you want to get the connectivity to your cell phone and notification that the dog has left the yard, there is a monthly fee for that, and that's $6.95. Okay, that's not too bad. So uh, is this in the market yet? Yes, it is. We started selling it in April. Oh, fantastic. And what's your price point on that? 1495 for the collar. And that's, you know, that compares favorably to the cost of installing a buried wire fence. And it's certainly much less expensive than installing a physical fence. Or several fences at a bunch of different places. Absolutely. All right. So if people wanted to learn more about Spot On, where would they go? They would go to spotoncala.com. Very good. Thank you very much, Thank Ken. You. Appreciate the really, time. Pr really appreciate it. Good to meet you. Well, I've realized that it's been quite some time since I was a new patron of a podcast, and I was curious whether the uh, Patreon people had changed the interface to make it any easier to figure out how to support the PodFeed podcast through Patreon. In the old days, it was sort of difficult to figure out because I published the NoSillaCast weekly, and so I set it up to charge weekly, but that would mean the minimum you could contribute was a dollar a week. But what if that's too rich for your blood? I'm happy to say that I've, they have modified the interface, so it's much clearer and easier to modify it to your own budget. By default, you see a window that says, choose what you pay, and it's set to $5. Below that, it has a radio button where you can choose to support every creation, the default, or you can set a monthly limit. If you change nothing, you would be supporting the PodFeed podcast at, between, at uh, $20 per month. <laughs> While that would be awesome for me, you can, of course, modify this. If you change the radio button to set a monthly limit, you can go as low as $1, and you can even choose how many times per month you'd like to be charged. The funny thing is, 
You can change it to $1 per month if you like, but you can also go up to 99 times per month. But that's a bug in the interface, but I still thought it was funny. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. Patreon lets you have complete and granular control of how much you want to pledge to support the work we do here at the Podfeet Podcast. Go check it out at podfeet.com slash Patreon. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. And I get to ask a dumb question this week, huh, Bart? Yeah, and it turns out a short question can result in a long answer. (laughs) But you seem to enjoy it. So hopefully this will be something that everybody will get something out of when we get to it. But first, we're going to start with feedback and follow-ups. Feedback and follow-ups, indeed. So, um, since the last time we spoke, uh, we've spoken a lot about DNS over HTTPS, or DOH. Um, and we know that Firefox is one of the browser manufacturers really pushing for it, and they're continuing that. The latest version of Firefox now enables DOH by default for new installs in the US. That's... So it's still phased, but it's now the default for anyone starting from scratch with a fresh Firefox profile. Oh, interesting. So if you already have Firefox, you don't have it? Well, you have Okay, we all have it as a, as a switch we can, tri- as we can toggle, and oh. we have had for a few versions of Firefox, okay. but the switch was off by default. Now they're putting it on by default for people starting fresh. And I don't, th- I, certainly not yet, they don't want to go and change people's settings behind their back. So maybe in a future update, they might ask you whether you want to change it. I don't know. But for now, it's the new default for people in the US. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, Google stops indexing WhatsApp chat invites. Uh, we talked about that last time, where if you have a WhatsApp uh, chat invite, it's a URL. If you post it somewhere, it will get indexed. Oh, so right. you think you have a private chat, only it's not private. Well, Google have done the sensible thing and removed those URLs from their index, but other search engines have not followed suit. So while not having it on the world's most popular search engine is better, you still shouldn't publicly share something that's supposed to be a secret. Right. Generally a good idea. Um, I may or may not have confused this show with Let's Talk Apple. Did we mention HomeKit routers becoming a thing I don't last th- time we spoke? Uh, no, because I don't think it had happened two weeks ago. I think it was like Oops. a week and a half ago. Okay, in that case, there are now. Then why don't I have in the show notes that links that that um, there was another company? Was it Linksys? There was someone oh, actually maybe had somebody some else shipping. Did. It was it was the the fact that Eero uh, is a HomeKit router now that happened about a week and a half ago, I think. Yeah, that's here as an update. But I I think we talked about. No, I'm convinced we did talk about it on this show because Could it was be. a different company. Was the actual first. Um, and the rollout continues with the Eero, and what makes Eero Im- special i guess they get to have a little award is there the first mesh router to get uh, or router no we definitely talked about it because i corrected router router um (laughs) they're the first mesh router router to get HomeKit support so i I, Uh, i'm i'm kind of bummed about this this sounded really exciting and cool but what it allows you to do is control how HomeKit compatible devices act on your network, whether they can talk to each other and whether they can talk out 
or whether they have all privileges. And it's mm-hmm. not the HomeKit ones I'm worried about. It's all the non-HomeKit ones I'd really like to be able to get into my router and be able to, you know, control with HomeKit. You know, or have those restrictions on. Okay. Um, but you have no way to do that for any of your devices now, whereas now you have yet another reason to favor HomeKit devices. Yeah, it's just it's just a slight change, though. I mean, I could already put things on my guest network and have them only talk to the outside, for example, and not be able to talk to each other. I guess for you, with your Y-shaped network and stuff, that's no, a just, fair point. It's just using the guest, the built-in guest feature of any any you know modern router. Well, no, because it's isolating them from each other, so it's like having infinite guests. Right, but that's just the guest. You just check the little box that says use the guest network and make it do and and tell the guest network don't let devices talk to each other. It's not right, a but this way you have some of them can see each other and some of them can't. Yeah, but I do that by putting some on my guest network and some not. It's it's but then the you're exposing. I, to be honest, I think it's a really big deal, and I think it's a fabulous feature, and I'm delighted to see Apple push it. If I it, mean, if it did much, I'd be real excited. I, I, but I disagree that it doesn't do much. I think this is huge. Like this gives people who don't who don't know the IP address of anything, who don't know any of the low level network stuff, a really easy button for controlling what a camera can and can't see. I just think that's huge. So, like so I, I'm, ju- I'm just saying that it. Well. Uh, you you have to make three decisions instead of one. If you just put something on your guest network, it can only go out. This allows you to do let things talk to each other or uh, like only talk inside the network, only talk outside the network or have those full privileges. It has those three features. And so that's more decisions for somebody who doesn't know anything about networking to make instead of just one. It's, it seems, uh, I don't know, maybe I don't understand it, Bart, because it just doesn't seem like I'm getting much more than what I already have with hitting a single switch to say guest network. Well, you, okay, but you have a very different setup to most people. And mm. controlling on a per device basis instead of a per network basis is a huge difference. Okay, I don't, I don't think this part of my network is any different than anybody else. I know, I know I've got these two routers daisy change, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. I have an Eero, and it has a guest network and a regular network, and that's it. And the stuff, and I put all of the creepy stuff that isn't HomeKit compatible on the guest network, so it can't talk to other stuff. Okay, but so you can control. But they're all in one network together now. Where they can't see each other. Okay, so you don't have the ability to have some of them see each other and some of them not. The guest network is an all or nothing thing. Either, But I still have the other network, right? I have the regular don't... network where if I want them to be able to see everything, then I would put it on the regular network. I, I must be missing something fundamental because I know I... you know what you're talking about, but it seems like the same thing. Uh... But this way, they're on your actual network. I think it's really, really nice that this is available to people to just click on through home in their Apple TV instead of having to decide which network they put stuff onto. Okay. They do have to make three di- a choice between three different things. Um, one one oh. thing to note is uh, Sandy contacted uh, Eero because the, the instructions say that people have been sending around say that you have to uh, d- re- disconnect and reconnect every single device that you want to do this with, which would be a freaking nightmare to me since I just finished doing 86 things on my network. Uh, and, she, and they said, no, 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 just turn the device on and off or unplug it and plug it back in and it'll, it'll acquire and do this appropriately. 
Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah. And actually, sorry, there, I knew there was something I was missing. There is a big difference. So that mode where the device is allowed to talk out, the vendor of the device whitelists, proactively whitelists what on the internet the device can talk to. So the default mode is that it can talk to the internet, but only to the whitelisted part of the internet provided by the vendor. So that means if the device gets hijacked, it can't send its data elsewhere. It can only send oh. it to where it's supposed to. A whitelist? Oh, who who maintains that whitelist? The, the vendors do? The ven- yes, each individual vendor for each individual device. So if you have a device that's supposed to send video to the cloud, by default... If you just have an, if you just let it do its default settings, it will only, it will be able to talk to only the part of the internet the vendor wants it to talk to. So if it gets hacked, it can't exfiltrate the data to a bad guy because it can only talk back to to, to, to where the it's supposed place. to be talking to. Oh, that's cool! Yeah. I didn't know that one. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. I knew there was something about it that made <laughs> me really like it, and that was it. That was the something. <laughs> okay, good, good. I don't think we did talk about it in hindsight, so I'm glad we dug in a bit deeper here, because I don't think we would have done it justice otherwise. Okay. Something we've definitely talked about, though, is signing with Apple, which is, to some extent, a little bit slower to, to roll out than I would have liked. But, you know, hey, it's always, you know, as long as it keeps going in the right direction. And just since last we spoke, we now have WordPress.com supporting um, signing with Apple and Etsy supporting signing with Apple. So, so for us. everybody's uh, just memory, this is like how you'll often see sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook. This is sign in with Apple. Which has privacy in mind as opposed to the inverse, which <laughs> is spying on you in mind, which is what the other ones are about. Yeah. Um, the other useful link that's in the show notes marked as related, the Mac Observer have a list of all the different things they know about that support sign in with Apple. Oh, that's it's cool. actually not a short list. Which pleases me. Yeah, yeah, great. We talked last summer repeatedly about American cell phone carriers basically selling location data, promising they'd stop, failing to stop, and then promising they'd really stop and eventually actually stopping. And that didn't go over well with Ajit Pai. And uh, the FCC are going to fine the carriers $200 million for that shenanigans. Ooh. Which is good. good. And finally, we spoke a few times about Clearview AI. Um, they, they're controversial at best, um, but they've not had a good two weeks since we last mentioned them. <laughs> they've had a wee bit of a data breach where they Remind have... Remind people leaked. what Clearview AI does. So Clearview AI scraped social media and built a searchable database of people, people's images, people's faces, where a customer of Clearview AI can upload a photograph and then be told, but based on Clearview AI's AI, which social media profile matches that picture. So you can imagine you walk into a store and the store owner instantly knows that you're, you know, doodlebug on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> or it's often, and many of the customers are law enforcement. Um, so they lost control of their customer database that was basically exfiltrated and hacked out of them. So we now know who their customers are, which has resulted in a lot of companies going, no, 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 we just did the free trial. We just did the free trial. We don't do this. We don't do this. La, 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 la. <laughs> um, and they also got caught violating Apple's rules on what you're allowed to do with enterprise certificates in the same way Facebook and Google did a few months ago, but half a year ago with their VPN. 
Uh, so Apple disabled their developer account too. So they've lost their customer database and they've been locked out of their developer account. So oopsie daisy. <laughs> We're all brokenhearted. Oh, absolutely shattered. And then finally, we talked last time about the fascinating story of the CIA together with the German intelligence service being the co-owners for a couple of decades of a Swiss firm selling hardware cryptography devices, sort of in the Cold War era when cryptography was done in hardware rather than, you know, now it's just an app, right? Um, so they were called Crypto AG. Well, a... There's a fascinating episode of the Fresh Air podcast where uh, the host interviews, uh, I think it's one, or I can't remember if it's one or both of the authors of that story. So you get to hear it from the horse's mouth in much more detail with a host asking all the questions you want to ask. Um, so I really enjoyed that episode. And I figure if people were fascinated by that story we talked about two weeks ago, that's a lovely little bit of follow up. All right, cool. We're ready for deep now, dives we- already? We are ready for deep dives, but before we get to do your deep dive, um, another one came up that we would have had to do anyway. So there is a dark side to the iOS clipboard. So security researchers have demonstrated an interesting new abuse of the clipboard in iOS. And to understand why this is a big deal in many people's minds, we need to put some context around this. So iOS isn't like macOS or Windows or even Linux. We it it's not normal for one app to be able to see what another app is doing, right? One of the reasons that we can do cool things on the Mac is that actually there is very strong inter-app communication. But that also means if you have a malicious app, they can do a lot of spying, so it's all swings and roundabouts. So when Apple redeveloped iOS, they wanted to make it very secure. And so in iOS, they started off with apps being complete island universes. There wasn't even copy and paste in the OS. Right, right. So they were totally... Yeah, I know. I mean, so they really started off with it more lockdown than we could ever tolerate on a desktop OS. And then they've been slowly retrofitting mechanisms, or not retrofitting, adding mechanisms to allow controlled interrupt communication where the user is in the driver's seat. And they've been extremely careful about this. To the point where if you drag and drop, if you go over an app but don't drop, the app doesn't get to see what you're dragging. It just gets told that there is a drag event, you know, update your UI. But until you release, the app that receives the drop isn't told what they're receiving. They're just told that there is something hovering over them. Please respond. I mean, that, that's not just not how it works in the Mac, right? If you hover over a Mac with something that you're dragging and dropping, the receiving app immediately gets told exactly what it is and can do whatever it wants with it. Um, and you know, we have the share sheet as another mechanism for interrupt communication. As, you know, so that Apple have been very careful about how they've implemented this. There's third party third party keyboards. Would they fit into that? Like copy and paste as a um as a clipboard manager? Yeah. Sure. So that, a third party keyboard is granted very high access, but again, third party keyboards can't install themselves. You have to proactively enable them, which is why. And even in third party keyboards, there's two APIs, so they can ask for a little bit of permission or full network access. Do you, I don't right, know if you, right. if you, if you, if you install just, many keyboards. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I have a few, and and I understand those those uh, those explanations that they give you the things you have to give it privileges for. But uh, in the context of this uh, dark side or the the topic that we're on today, I'm wondering whether a, a clipboard manager would be the kind of app that would fit in this category that's doing something uh, when you're not actively telling it to do anything. 
You've given it the privilege. Yes, but only because it's an app, not be. In fact, if anything, if it's a keyboard that doesn't have network access, it actually has, it's actually safe from this, whereas normal apps are not. Hmm. Okay. So, and not. A normal keyboard that hasn't asked for extra permissions has less permissions than a normal app. Right. So the default type of keyboard is more locked down than a typical iOS app. The type of keyboard that asks for permission is normal. It has, or slightly more privileged, I guess. It's actually, so they're either more locked down than your average app or less locked down than your average app, depending on on which of those two types of keyboard they are. All right. Um, And the the core difference between the two is whether or not they're allowed to touch the network. Hmm. Okay. So, right, so every keyboard can see what it's typing, but if it doesn't have network access, it can't spy on you. Makes sense. So that's why the, that's why the network access is the thing that requires your permission. Okay, got it. Okay, so with that context in mind, this is why researchers were aghast to discover that an app that's running an iOS that is not the foreground app, so not the app the user is currently interacting with, can call the API to paste. In other words, it can read the clipboard. So background apps include any app that has permission to stay in the background to download stuff or to play audio, or to be a Today widget. So they can all periodically poll the clipboard as long as they like. Really? And they have network access. And they've been doing yeah. this all along? No, there's no evidence this has been done. It has now been discovered it is possible. But I mean, it's been possible for them to do this all along? Correct. It's just no one's thought of trying it that we know of. Huh. And if any app is caught doing this, they can, of course, be immediately booted from the store, have their developer license removed, and have their app shut down. So that is at least, if anyone is caught abusing this capability, Apple have mechanisms to retroactively punish the developer, but hey, anything they've leaked has been leaked. So that's not optimal, better than nothing, but nonetheless, it is true that any app that you trust enough to install can pull the clipboard and grab data. And that's already bad because we tend to put stuff in the clipboard we care about. Why else have we put it on the clipboard? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. If you didn't care about it, you probably wouldn't. Right, but a lot of that stuff we put on the clipboard has metadata, and the metadata may be even more horrific than the thing itself. So images would be a prime example, because their EXIF data probably contains where they were taken, if, especially if you took the photo on the iPhone itself, because it will be geotagged. So over time, that could actually become quite an effective little tracker if you're just How constantly you... looking at How is the photo you take ever on the clipboard? I'm trying to think of regular use of an iPhone. Well, if, if you hit the share sheet, is it... One it up to another. Um, can you even do that? Sure. One of the things when you hit the up arrow is clipboard, copy clipboard. Like whenever that ex- one of the options that's always present there at the bottom. Oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. That's like the universal share is, oh, if all else fails, oh, sodded clipboard it is. Okay. Certainly right, that's me, right? right? Yeah. If all else fails, clipboard. And that was already kind of scary. And then the researchers come back a day later and went, oh, we found something else. Oh, no. Not just the iOS clipboard. It's the so-called universal clipboard. That magic syncing you can enable where you copy on the Mac and paste on iOS. Oh, the that's handoff or whatever it's called? 
Well, it's called Universal Clipboard. Okay. And it's always running. So even if you copy on the Mac and paste on the Mac, it's been in the Universal Clipboard because there's no way for, for, for Apple to know what you do and don't want to be able to paste somewhere else, right? Right. So that means that everything you copy on any device that's connected to your Apple ID can be spied on by any iOS app. Huh. So even if you don't copy images very much on your iPhone, maybe you do on your Mac. I do all the time. Command C, Command V. I'm just, oh God, he knows what's going through my clipboard. So basically, yeah, I don't th- for I don't now, think I copy pictures from my photos library. I copy images, like screenshots, millions of those. That's for sure. I don't know if they get geotagged. Hmm. I hope probably, they don't. Probably not, one, I would think. One, one would hope. One, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked, but I, I don't imagine they would. That would be a very strange thing to do. Anyway, for now, Apple's response is basically, no, no, this is how stuff is supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to copy and paste. And that's not going down very well. So... I have a hunch that that's a holding pattern until the next version of iOS, because to me, it seems obvious that there's very, very simple things Apple can do. And I say to me, it seems obvious because I read other people suggest these things, but they seem (laughs) eminently sensible to me. So sensible thing, the first, only the app in the foreground has access to the clipboard. I I don't see why any app should be able to paste unless you're the one doing it. Except a clipboard manager. That's a third party keyboard. Okay, maybe you can give keyboards an exception. Yeah. Because keyboards already are privileged. Right, right. So you draw the line slightly wobbly. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Another obvious approach would be to have it that definitely today widgets do not have access to the clipboard. There is no earthly reason a today widget should do anything but show you information. So just... Lock down today widgets more because, frankly, they should be highly locked down anyway. So you don't so think they should be in a position to show you something that you've copied? It just doesn't make I, sense. I I, I don't I use today widgets. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, the widgets are for a quickly glancing. Am I about to get rained on? How's my battery? How's the stock market doing? If I was into such a thing, I use mine to unlock you know, my front door. That's the only thing. Oh, because but you proactively push a button. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, my timer app is great. It shows it lets me control my timers from the today screen. So, is and Apple the other going to fix this? Well, they have to. The, for now, the, we don't know. Uh, the TV reading. So, for now, they've said no, no, no. This is the clipboard working as expected. So, for mm. now, it's no change. And the other obvious thing they could do in the future is they could make clipboard access like location access or whatever, and annoy us with more pop-ups. And yeah. Not, hmm. Because it would certainly be suspicious if a game suddenly said, hi, I'd like access to your clipboard. It's like, no, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You know, I, and, I've, started, I've started to like those pop-ups. I mean, at first it was really annoying, you know, during the first couple of weeks of using Catalina and stuff. But but now it's like, well, no, you, what do you need access to my contacts mm-hmm. for? That's silly. And... The other thing that's happened is developers are no longer asking for more permissions than they need because every user immediately gets suspicious. Why do you need that? Yeah. And so they don't ask 
lots and then only use a little. Now they really do only ask what they actually need. And so the temptation for developers to play fast and loose has been massively reduced just by the existence of these pop-ups. So I, I think they've been actually very positive. Hmm. Bottom line, though, for now, we have one defense. Only install apps you trust. Which is kind of what I've always said anyway. Yeah, I don't know about that kind of an answer, though. It's like, well, how do, how do you know whether you can trust an app? Well, the other thing is, any app caught being malicious is going to get booted from the app store immediately. And because it's iOS, Apple have the power to just kill them. Yeah. So a few people may suffer briefly, but then... So that is at least something. Yeah. Okay, well, now we get to have our second... Oh, I see a glaring uh, typo in the show notes. The actual title of this entire section is wrong by two... Uh, yes. Safari mandates two-year certs. No, they don't. <laughs> exactly what they're not doing. So right. I guess I should set up the what happened and then you can ask the questions. Is that the best way to go, Alison? Well, um, how about if I set it up just because I'm going to okay. do a hash Perfect. of it? I'll, I'll, and that's how you'll, you'll step in and, and explain what I should have, uh, what I need to know. So all Perfect. I know is that, uh, I've heard a lot of podcasts talk about this, is that Apple has decided that uh, Safari will insist on certificates, which uh, I used to always call SSL certificates, but I understand they're not called that any longer. Um, or maybe I shouldn't have been calling them that in the first place. But they'll do, they're going to demand that you don't have certificates for longer than a year or a year and a month, I think it might have been. And uh, that they were part of some standards body and they tried to get everybody else to go to this one-year certificate renewal thing and they were the only ones that wanted to do it. So Apple walked away and just did it on their own. And Safari on the Mac doesn't have an Im a giant impact on the universe, but Safari on iOS certainly does. So this is going to cause web hosting people who uh, host websites some angst and they're all up in arms about it. So I thought it'd be fun to ask you to, to maybe step back and remind us of what a certificate is, and then we'll walk into things like, what does it protect us against again? And what does it not protect us again? And are they really That's not... That's a really important one. I'm <laughs> yeah. so happy you asked that. Yeah, because I think I remembered that there was things that you could think it was protecting again uh, that wouldn't... Um, necessarily be so uh let's start with that much of the question i think that's kind of a good setup there okay so um we okay so you remembered correctly that we have talked about this before although you have quite the memory and we have been podcasting together for a very long time because we talked about this in an episode in 2013 wow well, yeah, I kept going back and I found a lot of times we were we referred to, cert to certificates in kind of an, you know, in a sideways ancillary kind of way. We kind of just throw it in. But I knew we had dug in real deep or explained exactly what they are. But let's let's kind of review that again, if you don't mind. Oh, no, absolutely. We're just saying so if you want to listen back to a full episode about it, it's uh, basically it's about the PKI because certificates are part of the public key infrastructure or the PKI. And so the segment is called Demystifying the PKI, and it was episode 434 in 2013. So it's embedded in that, and the show notes are, are there too, where Bart's, of course, put fabulous show notes. Yes. So before I can say what a certificate is, I need to lay some foundations if you will humor me. Absolutely. So at the heart of all of this is this public key infrastructure of the PKI, and one of the atoms that makes it work 
that's vital to it is asymmetric encryption. So to explain asymmetric encryption, I'm going to go about it in a very weird way and start with symmetric encryption because that's easy to understand. Symmetric encryption is like normal encryption. You take some plain text, you take a password of some sort, you run them through an algorithm and outspits some gobbledygook. You take that gobbledygook, you take the original password, you reverse the algorithm, and back comes what you initially encrypted. So if you encrypt a zip file, email it to someone, phone them with the password, they type in the password, and they decrypt the zip file, that's symmetric encryption. And it's called symmetric because key in equals key out. So it's a mirror image of itself. Right. Asymmetric crypto is different because there isn't one key. There are so-called key pairs. And so the the key is effectively a two-part thing. And the two parts are effectively identical to each other in the sense that anything part one encrypts, only part two can decrypt. And anything part two encrypts, only part one can decrypt. So it's not that one of them is an encryption key and one of them is a decryption key. They can both do both, but one can only undo what the other did. So they have to be, you have to use one on the one on the input and the other one on the output. So the one that does the encryption can't do the decryption? Correct. Okay. That is vitally important, actually, okay. yes. And so they always have to cross the pair. So if you encrypt with one, you decrypt with the other. And at the point we make them, at the point we create these pairs, we arbitrarily pick one and we decide that we will treat it as a secret and we will call it the private key. It's not inherently different. We just choose it and we can never change our mind or we undermine the entire security of the whole thing. So private keys have to be kept secret. That's why we call them private keys. And by default, the other one is the so-called public key. That can be published on a billboard on Times Square and have zero effect on your security. That's still, every time you tell us that, that still seems wrong. <laughs> but that's why asymmetric crypto is so powerful and why it makes well, it possible for two strangers on the internet to have a secure communication. But if, if I've got my, my uh, private key and I encrypt mm-hmm. something and you have my public key and that public key is pasted on a billboard, can't anybody use that private key to decrypt what I encrypted with my private key? Yes, which is why you wouldn't use your private key in that way to send someone something securely. You would use your private key in that way to assert your ownership of something or to digitally sign something. Okay, okay. So that doesn't make it it secret. That makes it signed, authenticated. That is really for me. Okay. Yeah, if you and I want to exchange encrypted stuff asymmetrically, we both need a key pair. Okay. I say, give me your public key, which you can share with me freely. I use your public key to encrypt the stuff I want to send you. And then the only person on planet Earth who can decrypt it is you because you have the private key. Oh, there we go. Okay. So if I put my public key out on on a billboard, people could encrypt stuff to send to me that only I could unencrypt. Correct. And that is how an awful lot of journalists protect their sources. They publish their public keys and then people can send them tips. Oh. I might actually have finally gotten it. Out of all the times you've talked about it, that has always, I've always gone, oh, okay, I guess I should understand what he meant. But that, that, uh, that, that the example of the um, uh, reporters sounds really, yeah, that might stick. Excellent. So that's one of our atoms that we need. 
The next atom we need is a mathematical algorithm, which is for the purposes of certificates and stuff, for the purposes of the PKI, we call them digests, but they're mathematically the same as hashing algorithms, which we also use for protecting passwords, but that has nothing to do with this conversation. Same math, though. So a digest is a function which takes as much input as you like, either one bit or the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, doesn't matter. It will always output the same length of a fingerprint, or digest, as we'll call it. And for a digest or a hash to be useful for doing anything in the PKI, to be cryptographically secure, it has to be really easy to go from the input to the output and effectively impossible to go the other way. If I tell you that something digested to 532414B5, blah, 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 you can never know what it was. Right. You also, what you would also like for it to be a good hash or a good digest is that a teeny tiny change in input results in a huge change in output. So you encrypt the whole of Moby Dick and then I change a question mark to a full stop in one page, you know, somewhere in the middle of the document and like half the bits in the hash flip. That is, that is the ideal, in fact, that small yeah. changes should flip half the bits. Okay. A different half, obviously, not like the first half. That would be horrific, right? Just that random, <laughs> they should flip. Uh, and it should also not be possible to pre-decide what the output will be, because that will give you the ability to fake things, to basically make what's called a collision. So if you know that something hashes to 431, you shouldn't be able to make something else up that's similar that also gets to that answer, because then you could basically make fake certificates if you could do that. And the reason that MD5 is no longer usable is because it can you can feasibly create collisions with MD5 because the math is just... Our computers are now fast enough to brute force MD5, so we can do those kind of things. And SHA-1 is now at the edge of that where it's affordable to throw a month's worth of Amazon compute time on it to break SHA-1. That's why we have to use SHA-256 these days. And this is where getting into quantum computing becomes terrifying, right? It means we'd have to change our math. Right. The concepts would remain the same, but sure. we need a new algorithm. Because our right. current algorithms are based on factoring, and factoring is really hard without quantum computers and really quite easy with quantum computers. But the right. nice thing is quantum physics is bad at different things, so we just need to change <laughs> our math. Right, but everything that's been encrypted will be unencryptable. That or, is the scary I mean, it will part, be decryptable. Yes. Yeah, you can go back in time and decrypt stuff that's now secure. That is the scary thing, which is why those massive hard drives sitting there in Langley are so scary. <laughs> so, we take these pieces, right, these two atoms, and they allow us to make a digital signature. So you take the thing that you want to sign, and you digest it. So you now have the thing and its digest. And then you use your private key to encrypt that which means anyone on planet Earth with your public key can decrypt it, recalculate the digest, and if the recalculated digest matches what you decrypted with the public key, then you know that the document has not changed since it was digitally signed. And you know that it was digitally signed by the person who possesses the private key that matches the public key you used. Is that how the, the code thing works where, where you can download, a, I'm, I'm forgetting the term, where you can download an application and it has a something that you double check it against? It is MD, MD hash? Is that what it, 
That's okay. That's only a digest. So that's that's only doing the digest part. It's not right, right, right. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. It, yeah. That that's where it's going. Okay, uh, this should look exactly like this. And if any bits are off, then it's not. It, it was messed with on its on its way to you. Correct. That okay. is exactly what those are. Okay. Those is it checksums are the, checksums? Yeah, they that's are the word I wanted. Thank you. Yes, they are digests. Yes. So, when you take a digest and you encrypt it with your private key then everyone knows that you were the one who signed it and that it hasn't been altered since you signed it. So when you download an app from the App Store that's digitally signed, that's what's happened. Apple digested it, stuck the digest to the bottom of the app, encrypted the whole kit and caboodle with their private key, and then your Mac has Apple's public keys. And so your Mac can then verify that the app has not been altered since it was signed. Sorry, I should say the developer signs it with the key that Apple has issued them. Okay. And Apple can revoke the key. And you so that that is that is a digital signature and they're used all over the place. So within the PKI, we need someone to vouch for these public keys, right? If I'm Amazon.com and I hand you a certificate that's just basically some metadata that's been digitally signed, how do I know the public key really is appropriate? Like how how do I know what public keys to trust? How do I have a list of public keys that are known to me, right? Basically, where do we we anchor our trust? Well, the answer is we don't anchor our trust with the website. We anchor our trust with so-called certificate authorities or CAs. So every computer you buy has loaded into it as part of its operating system a list of public keys for the trusted certificate authorities. Some browsers like Firefox choose not to use the OS's public keys. They bring their own. So Firefox has its own copy of those public keys Firefox uses to trust. Whereas Chrome uses the ones built into the OS, as does Safari and Edge and IE. But either way, your computer and your browser have a list of known public keys. Okay. And the certificate authorities take the public key from the website owner and some metadata that says what website it's for and how long it's valid and all those kind of information about the public key. And then they digitally sign the whole kit and caboodle using their private key. And so your browser, all a certificate is, is metadata plus public key that has been signed by a certificate authority. Makes sense. Okay, phew. Okay, good. That, <laughs> is, that, is, that is what a certificate is. Right. And okay. if you're curious, the format for that metadata and the public key together is called an X509 certificate, if you're going to be really picky about it. Man, who named it that? That's boring. It's some sort of numbered standard, like 802.1x and all those kind of things, or 802.abg and all of those for your Wi-Fi. I'm getting all tied up Oh, but they don't have that anymore now. It's Wi-Fi 6. Under the hood, those are the official standards that exist. I've chosen to brand them separately. Yeah. Which is better. Uh, it's oh, here AY, it is. The International is the Telecommunications Union's Standardization Sector. There you yeah. go. <laughs> Anyhow, X509 is used for lots and lots of certificates. Like if you have um, a lot of con- countries, if you file taxes online, you have to have a, a, a client certificate. That's an X509 cert. If you followed our instructions to get an SMIME certificate to encrypt your email, that's an X509 cert. Oh, and okay. if you run a website like podfeet.com and you get a certificate for that website, that's an X509 cert. 
Hmm. What makes them different is the metadata. So they all contain a public key. They're all digitally signed by a certificate authority. And the metadata says, what is this public key for? You know. So in your case, your certificate says that it's only valid on the, U- on the domain podfeet.com. And it's only valid from this starting date until this end date. And a few other bits and bobs of metadata. It says, for example, the only thing this cert could be used for is websites. It can't be used for email. Those kind of things. That's what's in the metadata. Okay. So digital certificates can be used to encrypt and or digitally sign digital content. So that's big picture stuff. So we use them on the internet for HTTPS. So every time you see the little lock, that's what gets the little lock. It's also what powers many VPNs, and it's also what powers the secure versions of the email protocols we all rely on, like POP3, the secured version of POP3, the secured version of IMAP, and the secured version of TLS. All of it is actually using the same, the same technology, which we will refer to as TLS slash SSL. And we'll talk a little bit more. Actually, let's jump ahead in the show notes. Okay. So SSL is the original name, Secure Socket Layer. There was SSL 1, 2, and 3. And then someone was like, you know, that that actually doesn't make sense. It's actually transport layer security. So what was about to be called SSL4 got a new name, TLS1. So the difference is SSL old name, TLS new name. Oh, okay. um, so for a long time, people wrote SSL slash TLS. And then people started writing TLS slash SSL. And since our browsers no longer trust SSL at all because it's utterly broken these days, I think TLS is finally just standing on its own now in people's minds. Okay, so you asked a really important question. What does it what? save us from, or, or what does it tell us, and what does it not tell us, right? Or yeah, protect so us let's from? start with the positive case. What does it tell us? So the first thing that certificates in HTTPS, so up until now, I've been talking very generally. From now on, I'm only going to talk about HTTPS. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So HTTPS gives us the following guarantees. Confidentiality. Information sent over an HTTPS connection is encrypted and can only be read by the web server and the web client, i.e. your browser, and not by anyone in between. So the people sharing your Starbucks, even if they can see all of your internet traffic, it's garbage. They can eavesdrop on your garbage. HTTPS means that it's encrypted end-to-end, so the server is one end, your web browser is the other end, and it's encrypted in between. So it's confidential. The second guarantee is integrity. Whatever the server sent is exactly what arrives on the other end, or it is detected that it has been tampered with and you get an error. So basically you're promised, you're guaranteed that the website sent by the web server is what is received by the web browser i.e. what you see in an HTTPS window is what the server sent you. And then the last one is a really important one, authenticity. So you are given a promise that you really are talking to the website you think you're talking to. So in other words, it really did come from the identity asserted by the certificate. Now, what that means actually depends on the certificate. And how much you pay? Yes. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. How much you pay. So there's three levels of certificate, which is something most people don't realize. 
The lowest tier of certificate is a so-called Domain Control Validation, or DCV, or just DV for short, because all the other ones have two letters, so they you sort of leave the C out if you want everything to be two letters. So a DCV or DV cert, that means that the certificate authority forced the person who got the cert to prove that they are in control of the domain names the cert is valid for. Oh, yeah, so I remember I have, that. I had to put some little piece of text into my website that it could then go read and go, yep, you are in control of it. It doesn't mean you're supposed precisely. to have control of it, but exactly. you do at this moment have control over it, right? Bingo. So a domain control validation certificate asserts that the person who has the private key is in control of this domain. That is all. So a man in the middle cannot get a DCV cert because they're not actually in control of the domain. So it protects you from an awful lot of stuff. But all it means is that the address in the URL bar is really where you are. If that address is poopal.com instead of paypal.com, you're being scammed. Securely, <laughs> but you're being scammed. So as, right, as a bad guy takes my, takes my money, you can't see that bad guy is taking my money. Right. Exactly. Uh, okay. So the next level up is OV or organization validation. And this is the most common cert used for e-commerce. Actually, we should say that domain control validation, because it's just asserting control of the domain, it can be automated. And that's what Let's Encrypt do. They are automated domain control validation certificates. And the reason that they can be free is because they can be automated, because all they're doing is making you prove ownership. So the way it actually works in the background, um, the little agent that runs for Let's Encrypt puts some random glop onto a predefined URL on your website and tells the server to go check for the glop. The server goes, yep, that's the glop I wanted to see. You are in control of this domain. Here's your certificate for three months. And every week it checks to see if it needs to update that. And if it does, it has the same handshake again. Hello, Let's Encrypt server. Tell me what random glop you want me to put on the website to prove I am me. There you go. There's the random glop. Check it if you like. Okay, thanks for the certificate. Carry on. So that's how they work. That makes sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Excellent. So the next step up is OV. And OV costs money because OV cannot be automated. And organization validation means that the certificate authority has to make contact with you over voice. And to get you have to prove to the certificate authority that you are a representative of the organization that is applying for the certificate. So... I work in a university and I unfortunately drew the short straw and I am the person who takes care of our OV. Mm. And that involves once a year some very, very, very pernickety hoop jumping to prove that I am a representative of my university so that I can get certificates which are tied to my university. So when you, when you go to the university's website and view the details on certificate, it doesn't just say that we control our domain. It also says that we own our domain, in other words, that we, the organization has been validated as well as just the domain name. And there's quite a few hoops to jump through. And then the last one is called EV for extended validation. And that takes the hoop jumping and turns it up to 11. <laughs> there's fire in the hoop, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I, I, I've, like, OV caused me a lot of stress this year for reasons I don't want to go into on air. But yeah, so, um, OV can be bad enough. One of the things, uh, Leo Laporte was talking about this uh, after, I, I don't remember if he'd done security now yet with Steve Gibson when he was talking about it, but he said that one of the things he needs 
is uh, wildcard cert. And mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure what that was. And he said that, that that's the reason he can't use an automated service like Let's Encrypt. Right. So the domain control validation certs are for single domains. And a wildcard is star dot something dot something. So anything.podfeet.com is a wildcard certificate. Okay. And I don't have that with Let's with You do not have that. Okay. And if you wanted it, you'd have to go through OV. Oh, okay. Okay. Because you're not getting a certificate for one domain, right? You can't prove ownership of every possible subdomain, right? There's infinitely many of them. Yeah, I've never really understood subdomains. <laughs> okay, anything.podfeet.com is a subdomain of podfeet.com. Right, so but, if I own podfeet, this... but if I own podfeet.com, does that mean I own all the subdomains too? Right, but you have to demonstrate control of the domain the certificate validates. If the certificate validates all subdomains, then how do you put a text file on every possible subdomain? Well, but it's, to me, it's the wording of subdomain sounds like it's a subset of the thing that I, I've already proven I own. Therefore, if it's a subset, then I already own it. If right, I, but DCV being the lowest level of security, the certificate authority that board way. that place Apple did a solo run from mm-hmm. does not allow that low level of validation gotcha. to give out something as powerful as a wildcard certificate. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. EV and OV can have wildcards, though. So, you asked me, what does it not protect you from? Yeah. And the most important thing, HTTPS does not make any sort of assertion about the trustworthiness of any website or organization. All it says is that the website you're at, what's in the address bar, is the server you're talking to. And that the organization, it maybe also says that the organization is who you're talking to. But that organization could be a criminal enterprise. That organization could be a bunch of scammers, right? Getting OV is not a test of your character. It's just a test that you are who you say you are. And DCV is not a test of your character. It's just, or even who you are in any way. It's just that you control the domain. So if your certificate gets stolen, then both OV and DCV also fail. Oh, right, right, right. right. If the private key is nicked, well, then they're being you. They've just stolen your assertion. Right. So I, the way I tell people is, if you look at the address bar and you have a padlock, it means you really are at the website you think you're at. But be bloody sure the website you think you're at is one that you're comfortable being at. Because it doesn't tell you it's a good place. It just tells you that you are where you think you are. You may be in a really dodgy neighborhood. Hmm. It's like GPS, right? If your GPS shows you a really fine dot on the map, you have a really good fix on where you are. That does not tell you your level of danger. It just tells you where you are. So I, I hope yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and we've already done the SSL or TLS bit. Uh, so what did Apple announce? So Apple basically said, from September, Safari will not accept any certificates whose start date is after September and whose valid period is longer than a year and a few days. They rounded it up a bit for various reasons. And if a certificate is issued after September 1st, 2020, and has a longer validity than a year, then Safari will always mark the certificate as invalid, even if it's properly signed. And Apple did this unilaterally. They just said, we are doing this. This is not the industry. This is us. Doing yeah, this. I, I heard some podcasts, I don't remember which one it was. It might have been ATP, where they were speculating that the reason Apple did that was that 
um, all of the vendors just thought it was a good idea, but none of them were willing to take the take the hit. So they drew straws, and and Apple drew the short straw, so they can act, you know, all pearl clutching that Apple did this, and they'll go, okay, yeah, we're doing it too now. That is pure very plausible. That is, it is pure speculation, but it is very plausible in the same way that Google did a, quite a few solar runs to force HTTPS on things. And maybe Google are tired of always being bad cop. So it's maybe. plausible. Plausible. So you asked me, do we know why Apple did this? And the only answer is nope. Nope. Not a clue. Theories. That's all we have. You also asked me what the impact is. And this is interesting. So for automated DCV certificate authorities like Let's Encrypt, there is zero impact because the short-lived, sorry, these automated certs are, have always been short-lived. They've always had a three-month lifetime. So your, your Let's Encrypt certificate has always been three months. It will continue to be three months. Three months is less than a year. Zero problem. So for the next question is, okay, so certificate authorities using OV or EV, like DigiCert would be a good example. So they now need to issue their certificates twice as often because in 2018, everyone agreed, you, not unilateral, sorry, everyone agreed no solar runs that it will be from three years down to two. So that was in 2018. So now Apple are effectively, they have enough clout to force the industry to follow suit. So that means that the CAs have to issue certificates twice as often. But the work in OV and EV is not actually the mathematics of issuing the certificate you know, let's encrypt do that for free every three months. So that's actually a minimal impact. The actual work of OV and EV is the validation of the organization. And that's always been an annual renewal, regardless of the length of the certificate. So every year, I have to go through OV with my certificate authority. And that's true of everyone else who has a relationship with the certificate authority for OV. So actually, from a certificate authority point of view, this is a minimal impact because, oh, we have to do a little bit of math twice as often as we used to, once every year instead of once every two years. But the actual hard work that involves our human beings, we're doing exactly as often as we used to. So there's no real impact there. So the last people who do have an impact are the people who own websites. Or rather, the people who own websites with an OV or EV cert, because they now have to do the manual work of requesting a new certificate and getting it signed twice as often. And you might say, but Bart, aren't they going to have to pay twice as much money? Because they now need to get twice as many certs. The good news is the certificate authorities, it's looking like, details are still emerging because Apple surprised everyone by doing this, but it's looking like the approach being taken by the industry is to separate billing from certificate life. Mm, that makes sense. So you will buy a subscription to certificates for your domain for three years, five years, 10 years, whatever you want. And as long as your, your subscription is active, you can just get a new cert whenever you want. And that makes perfect sense. And that is, thankfully, where DigiCert and the other big CAs appear to be headed. So basically, on the whole, website owners have to renew their cert twice as often. That's it. So that's not actually a big impact. And I don't really yeah. see why people need to lose their sleep. Yeah, people, well, I, you'll have to deal with it twice as often. I will, yeah. I'm not stressed over it. Yeah. Um, they did Nothing talk about people getting even longer certs. And, you know, usually it just falls to somebody who didn't run out of the room fast enough. You know? And so there was, uh, you know, and then that person quits the company by the time it comes around. And you're like, 
hey, yeah, who did that? I, I don't, was that Fred? Fred's not here anymore. Yeah. Now, technically speaking, we've run out of time. Are we good for 15 more minutes? Allison? Yeah, we can do it. Okay. Okay. And I need to be done in 15 too, though. So let's go. So the other question is, does this make us safer? And the answer is most annoying here. This is the point where I get annoyed. I don't get annoyed because it's one year. I get annoyed because it's the reason for doing it is a cop out. Oh, really? So, yeah. Why are we doing this? The answer is because revocation is broken. So in theory, every certificate authority has the power to revoke certificates. And in theory, our browsers should proactively check if certificates are revoked before trusting them. In reality, our browsers don't because it's a massive performance bottleneck. And to understand how we got to this mess, you have to, we just need a very short history lesson. So the original mechanism for revocation was really simple. The certificate authority published on a web page a list of revoked certificates called a certificate revocation list. In the olden days, there were like five sites on the internet that were secured. And then maybe there were 500, but the CEO, you know, that list was of the revoked certificates was always going to be short because there were so few certificates at all, let alone revoked ones. So the browsers would just check once a week for the list of revoked certificates. And then every time you went to a web page, they could just check against that short little list. No problem. But when HTTPS really took off, certificate revocation lists became long and it became a chore for browsers to proactively check the list over and over and over again. And every certificate authority maintains their own list. So the browser had to go fetch hundreds of lists and consolidate it all together. It was a mess. And basically, I think Google took the lead and basically went, I know how to make Chrome really snappy. Let's not do this. (laughs) So they stopped doing this. So the next answer was something called the Online Online Certificate Status Protocol, or OCSP. And the idea here is that the CAs would run a website and there will be a URL for that website baked into the metadata in the certificate. And when you got a certificate from a web server, there will be a URL you would ping and it would basically give a thumbs up or thumbs down. So basically, has this been revoked? Yes or no. And in theory, if the certificate authorities were really good at running efficient web servers that had very low latency and were always up, this would work really well. Certificate authorities are not content delivery networks. They're certificate authorities. This is not playing into their core strengths. They were not good at it. And the other problem is a man in the middle can play havoc with OCSP. They don't have to alter the response from the certificate authority, which is over HTTPS and therefore can't be altered. They just have to block it to deny the website. Okay. Block all queries to certificate to OCS block all OCSP queries and the browser has suddenly gone blind. Does it fail open or does it fail closed? If it fails open, then the man in the middle can just man in the middle. And if it fails closed, well, then they've just denied service. That's terrible. So that doesn't work. And that's why we've been reducing the length of our certificates. It's like, okay, if a certificate is stolen, at least it's only valid for a year. But hang on a sec. <laughs> That's still stolen for a year, right? It's still stolen for a year. That's horrific. But that's the logic between cutting it from two years to one year. It's half as bad. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That's not good enough. You're really really shooting for the moon there. Right. And what makes me triple annoyed is that there is an actual genuine solution, but it involves three parties working together instead of two. 
and no one is prepared to take the lead on getting those cats herded together. So the solution is something called OCSP stapling. So instead of the web browser having to go check the status of the certificate, the web server does it periodically, say once every 48 or 24 hours. And it asks the, the certificate authority to digitally sign an assertion that says this certificate is still valid and it will be a really short-lived assertion. So the assertion will have a lifetime of 24 or 48 hours. And the server will renew that every 24 or 48 hours. And when the browser says, give me your certificate, the server gives the certificate and it hands with it the fresh assertion that's still valid. So it staples the OCSP status to the cert, hence OCSP stapling, hmm. and hands the cert and the stapled assertion to the browser. The browser has the public key for the certificate authority. It verifies the cert. It verifies the assertion. Ta-da! Secure certificate revocation. No slowdown in web browsing. A tiny bit more work for web servers. Oh, but Once not, a day. not the CAs. The CAs don't have to be efficient or run their servers well? Well, no, because they've only been asked by every web server once a day. Like, even I could run a website efficient enough to manage that. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, the burden massively shifts from something that has to be checked once a day for every domain to something that has to be checked every time every web browser. So if you have a million hits to PayPal every day, that's a million hits on the OCSP versus one hit a day from PayPal's own server. See how the scaling is stupendously yeah, okay. different? Okay, yeah. And the workload on the browser is teeny tiny. All it has to do is verify two digital signatures instead of one digital signature, no extra network I.O. Man in the middle is powerless to block it. Brilliant. It's perfect. The only problem is the web server has to automatically renew the assertion every 24 to 48 hours. There's only one web server does it at the moment, according to Steve Gibson, who researched this for Security Now. That would be, of all servers, Microsoft IIS. Hmm. So not Apache? Apache or, or... has support, but you Apache can do the stapling part but you have to write your own little script and put it in a cron job to do the fetching the bloody assertion part. <laughs> so it's a hack. And Nginx is in the same situation. So basically they've done, they've started a true implementation, but they have not finished a true implementation. It's not ready for showtime. And strangely enough, in browser land, it's not Edge that is on the ball. It's Firefox that's the only browser that's on the ball. So basically we need the certificate authorities the browsers and the servers to just do OCSP and this problem would go away and we could safely issue three-year certs again. But that is more difficult than saying, oh, we're just going to rep- we're just going to do certs for a year and we're big enough that you just have to. So they took the cop out. They took the easy way out and it's not that effective. Yeah. But that's why I'm cranky. Well, but the uh, OCSP stapling still can come. It can, and I really, really, really hope. And the, the, basically, the people who are u- who are using this as a reason to get angry to push for OCSP are directing their anger in a positive way. The people who are just cranky for crankiness' sake, rebel or evil, that's pointless. So I'm seeing lots of critiques saying, no, 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 OCSP stapling, OCSP stapling, and that's really positive, and they have to win, in my opinion. But just general crankiness, it's a year-long certificate, meh, meh, meh. That, that's not helpful. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this I'm glad I asked this simple question, Bart. 
I'm hoping I answered it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you did. That was uh, that was really, really interesting. I like the review, and I think I might, we'll see whether it sticks, but I think I might actually be following this de- uh, uh, Well, you have something to link to in the future. Yeah, right, right. All right, we need to so work through the us- rest of this quickly. Yeah, now I, I I told you I would turn my filter up to 11 for what's worthy of talking about in the rest of security bits. So action alerts. Google have released their March security patches for Android. They contain critical fixes. If you can patch your Android phone, patch it. If you can't, get a new phone. I need to There's jump nasty- in. I know I told you to hurry up, but I um, just while we were talking here, I just checked and found, discovered that my seven-month-old Moto G7 that I bought because my previous phone from Google would not get updates is not getting these updates. They're ah. not, Motorola, they're, they're not letting the G7 have uh, uh, Android 10. My last update is yeah. December, and it says, yep, you're up to date. I, I can't believe this part. It's seven freaking months old. I just threw away the other phone. I'm so angry. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah. That, that, ah. I mean, there may, there may be a, an update to Android 9 that will fix these problems. I don't know. But oh, I haven't, gosh. the latest one I have is December. Ah, seven months. Not good enough. Okay. Not good enough. Keep, now you can go. Okay. Zero day in Chrome. If you're using Chrome, let it update itself. Turn it off, turn it on again. It should do it. NVIDIA have patched serious flaws in their GeForce Quadro NVS and Tesla graphics cards. If you run those, patch, 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 patch your drivers. Zysol have fixed zero days in their network storage devices. And apparently it turned out a few days later, also their firewalls. So if you have a Zysel device, that's spelled Z-Y-X-E-L, pronounced Zysel, I am semi-reliably informed. And then finally, Netgear have patched the firmware on thousands of their routers. Nasty vulnerability, patches are out there. Mm. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Worthy warnings then, lots, basic, okay, so the first thing is really annoying. This happens every time there's something nasty on planet Earth. Scammers are exploiting COVID-19 slash coronavirus to try extort, get, basically trick people into doing things that will cost them in some way. So beware. Mm-hmm. US CERT have issued a webpage defending against COVID-19 cyber scams. Apple has been really good about this. They are rejecting coronavirus apps that are not from health organizations. Good. Facebook have banned coronavirus miracle cure ads. Good. <laughs> And uh, some nice tips from Naked Security on how to secure yourself if you're forced to work from home because of coronavirus. Hmm. And uh, finally, if you want to disinfect, as in physically disinfect from actual physical viruses, your phone, be careful. Do not use bleaches. There's a really good article on iMore basically saying the do's and don'ts. Basically, alcohol good, bleach bad. When it comes to disinfecting your phone. Uh, Some security researchers have found that Apple's Notes app is not as good at encrypting notes as you think it is. It accidentally leaks sections of notes from time to time. I think it's the titles, right? I think it's something about the titles that are actually exposed. We see the thing is the way Apple's Notes works is there is no title field. Mm. Sort of the first sentence is sort of considered the title. So depending on how you write notes, it's either the start of your note or the title. Yeah. Cathay Pacific have been fined £500,000 for a major data breach. It's the kind of data breach that involves making you really vulnerable to spear phishing. It's basically really detailed um, which flights you've been on, what your passport number is, that kind of stuff. Not your payment information, but that's still dangerous. 
There's an app called KidsGuard, which is described as stalkerware. It's advertised as a way of tracking your kids. It's pretty creepy. They've unfortunately had a massive security breach, which makes it uber creepy. Uh, similar vein, popular baby monitor found to be wide open to hacking. And rather annoyingly, PC Mag didn't put the name of the baby monitor into the title of their headlines. So you have to <laughs> click on the link. Grr. Uh, and then a company called GoodRx were caught sharing medical data with Facebook and Google and have stopped, which I guess is nice. And finally, for UK people, Boots have had to suspend their loyalty cards because of fraud on the loyalty cards. It's not so much a data breach as basically people's points being stolen because of password reuse. So they've stopped people being able to spend points on their Boots card at all. By the way, the baby monitor is the iBaby Monitor MS6. Okay, apparently it's popular. I know not. I haven't heard of it either. <laughs> Notable news. Major new flaw in Intel undermines the trusted platform module. It puts DRM and disk encryption at risk. Right now, it's not yet practical to attack. So for now, there's no need for any of us to set our hair on fire. But it all depends on one hardware key not being cracked and the attackers think they'll crack it. So maybe this becomes a hair on fire story in the future. But for now, it's just a problem for Intel, not for us regular folk. Security researchers have found a massive new Wi-Fi flaw quite similar to Crack, called Crook, K-R-O-O-K. This time it's limited to Broadcom and Cypress chipsets. Uh, It's been responsibly disclosed, so that means that any device that is being actively managed has a firmware update for you. The problem, of course, is all the devices that have been abandoned and are never going to get firmware updates. Um, one nice thing is this is WPA2 only. So if your router supports WPA3 and you switch to WPA3, you're definitely safe. I never even heard and of WPA3 before. Uh, we did talk about it when it was mm-hmm. launched on this segment. It's basically WPA2 with less suck. So it's not earth shattering. Okay. Better. Uh, so basically, if your router isn't getting firmware updates anymore, it's probably time to get a new one because it's the bit of your network that touches the internet and is really vulnerable. Uh, Airbnb are coming under serious fire for how they calculate their trustworthy scores because basically they go and troll social media and then use that to judge you, but they won't tell you how. And that's got a bunch of privacy advocates up in arms because, well, it's, you know, algorithms being used in spooky ways. And... Uh, A very important U.S. court case has found that Google is not covered by the First Amendment. To me, this is obvious. Google are not the government. Uh, But we now have a court case to prove the obvious, which means that Google and other companies have the right to censor content on their networks. Very, very important freedom for them to have. Hmm. Top tips. uh, How to back up your contacts on your Mac from iMore. If you care about your contacts, worth reading. Excellent explainers. HomeKit secure video. Everything you need to know from iMore. This is really good if you've got one of these newfangled security cameras that's HomeKit compatible. Uh, interesting insights. Uh, why free Wi-Fi isn't really free from naked security. Basically, if they're giving you something for nothing, they're stealing your data. That, that's kind of what it boils down to. Follow the money. <laughs> free P. Yada, yada, yada. Right. And that is all she wrote. I forgot to do palate cleansers. You know what? I anyway. uh, You didn't, and I erased it, but I have one to put back in. I found a tweet oh, on Twitter okay. from Chris Bernie 42 who wrote, Due to COVID-19, all TCP applications will be converted to UDP to avoid handshakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's so nerdily wonderful. <laughs> I thought that fit. What do you think? I, I think that works. I don't remember what I'd picked, but I'm sure. No, no, you hadn't picked anything. Oh, okay. That's why I felt Phew. I felt comfortable throwing it in. All right, Bart. Well, this has been great, but I'm going to hang up on you quick because I got to switch gears and do uh, the NoSilicast now. Okay, have fun. Until next time, happy computing. Say patch, stay secure, whatever. One of those. Bye. All right. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You wanted to go check out that new way you can do uh, become a patron? Go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. Well, you don't like that and you want to maybe do a PayPal donation instead, be like Chris, set up a little uh, quarterly alarm to remind yourself to uh, just do a donation. You do that at podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join in the conversation? You can do that one of two ways, Facebook or Slack. We are at podfeet.com slash Facebook and podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And most of the time it doesn't crash and burn. And that's where you can join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.